Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And we continue through our Advent series in the book of Isaiah. And as Matthew had mentioned last week, we're organizing our Advent series around the, the antiphons. These are special titles of Christ. And they're titles of Christ that we see reflected in the famous Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And last week we looked at Emmanuel, and this week we're looking at the title Adonai, which is reflected in the song, O Come, O Come, Thou Lord of Might. And as we'll see, Christ's lordship is, is different than the lordship that we've come to know in the world. And few texts bring this out better than Isaiah 2, which we'll look at today. So before we turn to this passage, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for who you have revealed yourself to be, who you truly are, that you are Adonai, that you are our Lord, and that as we see in this passage, it is a lordship that's very different than what we have come to know. Help us to long more fully for this lordship and to understand it better. And toward that end, Father God, I do pray that you would bless the words that follow, that they would be true to your intention for this passage, for what you have revealed your lordship to be. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, few pieces of, of literature have so captivated and continually formed imaginations than the Homeric epic, the Iliad. And the poem, it, it gives us a glimpse of the last year of the decade-long siege of the Greeks upon the city of Troy. And the Iliad has been called the poem of death. And as the poet Homer weaves his tale, we are taken through the many hardships of war. And certainly one reason that this has remained so influential is that humanity finds itself in very much the same situation as the original Greek audience. Life remains full of death and full of war. Conflicts between peoples and nations persist. 
And so the story of the Iliad, it might be foreign to us by way of culture, but it is not foreign to us by way of the human condition. The classicist and scholar Elizabeth Van Diver, she, she brings this truth out powerfully as she comments on a famous scene. And in this scene of the Iliad, the Greek warrior Achilles, who himself is fated to die in the battle, he stands beside the ditch, the trench of the Greek army with the sun going down behind him. And as the sun crowns him in light and in anger for the death of his dear friend Patroclus, Achilles screams and he causes the Trojans to flee. Van Diver connects this to a poem written by a British poet who served in World War I, Patrick Shaw Stewart. Shaw Stewart was stationed in Gallipoli in 1915, Gallipoli being on the Carissonese Peninsula, situated on a body of water called the Dardanelles, and right across from the historical site of Troy. And while on leave for three days on the peaceful island of Imbros, Shaw Stewart reflected on his situation through the lens of the Iliad. He, like Achilles, was near upon Troy. He, like Achilles, knew trench warfare. He, like Achilles, was not hopeful for the outcome. And so on the cusp of returning to war, he wrote the following poem. I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer if otherwise wish I. Fair broke the day this morning upon the Dardanelles. The breeze blew soft, the morn's cheeks were cold as cold seashells. But other shells are waiting across the Aegean Sea. Shrapnel and high explosives, shells and hells for me. O oh, hell of ships and cities, hell of men like me, fatal second Helen, why must I follow thee? Achilles came to Troyland, and I to Kyrsenese. He turned from wrath to battle, and I from three days' peace. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knowest not, and I know not, so much the happier am I. I will go back this morning from Imbros over the sea, stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped and shout for me. And Vandiver, she points out that the Iliad continues to live and continues to speak to Shaw Stewart because history continues to repeat itself. We have traded spears for guns, but Shaw Stewart, like the mythical Achilles before him, will be killed in battle. We should sense a deep sadness here. History marches forward, yet things stay very much the same. In terms of peace between people, are we really better off than Achilles? Well, certainly the morning news would beg otherwise. And no century was more bloody than the century that we just finished. The Christian tradition has generally held that there is such a thing as a just war. War is never chosen lightly, but there can be just reasons for doing so. Nonetheless, even the most just of wars is the product of a fallen world. This is not how it's supposed to be, 
Yet no historical program or social initiative has really been able to change the way that we are. We're in the same place as Achilles and Shaw Stewart. This is fallen human history. This is as far as we can get by our own efforts. And if this is our only horizon, then we have no real reason for hope. And it's only with this realization that we can properly come to the passage today. Isaiah presents us with a vision for humanity of perfect fellowship with God and neighbor. It's a vision of perfect communion and peace and joy. And in contrast to the fallen human history that we all know so well, this is a vision of a world of peace, a world without war. No longer does nation rage against nation, but each joins together in joyful worship of the Lord. But we may object. This is not the history that I know. This is not the way the world works. This is not how nations and peoples relate to one another. There's no amount of historical progress that could actually take us here. And in saying all of these things, you would be absolutely right. This is not history that we know. This is not the fruit of historical human progress. This is not the collective culmination of our pro-social initiatives, however noble and certainly important they might be. If Patrick Shaw Stewart finds himself in the same place as Achilles thousands of years after historical progress, then clearly we're not the ones who can bring such things about. This is not human history working itself out. This is eternity breaking into history. And what cues us to this? The opening lines of the prophecy. Isaiah tells us, it shall come to pass in the latter days. But in fact, a much more literal translation is, it shall come to pass at the end of days. It shall come to pass at the end of history as we now know it. As biblical scholar Brever Childs writes of this verse, it speaks of God's time, different in kind from ordinary time. And it signals immediately that there is no simple linear continuity between Israel's historical existence and the entrance of God's kingdom. Rather, into the old breaks the radical new. God breaks into human history, and he himself does what we have always longed for but could never achieve. God breaks into our world of wars and conflicts and nation against nation and people against people, and he brings peace. He brings reconciliation. He brings about what our hearts most deeply desire. This is what the Lord will do. This is what our great Adonai will and can alone accomplish. He establishes his perfect city, his Zion, his perfect communion of love and peace among God and community. And so let us search out this glorious city of God under three headings. Remembering the city, establishing the city, and anticipating the city. Let's look first at remembering the city. Immediately after telling us when this will happen, at the end of days, Isaiah tells us where it will happen. He speaks figuratively here, telling us, and the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, 
and shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow into it. Why would Isaiah present a mountain as this epicenter of God's radical breaking into our mournful march of history? Well, if we look closely, we find an important clue in the text. We actually find a curious image here that contradicts the way of the natural world. We have a mountain and we have something flowing to it. But the suggestion here is that we actually have something flowing up the mountain. But of course, water flows down mountains. It doesn't flow up into the mountain peaks. But as Isaiah tells us, all the nations shall flow into it. And how is it that the nations flow into it? Well, as the nations tell one another, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They flow up into it. They are many rivers that come together and flow upward. Why does Isaiah use this imagery, this imagery that contradicts the natural world? Well, if this has no deeper meaning, then this is just bad writing. If this has no deeper meaning, this is bad metaphor. However, to understand what's going on here, we have to go back. We have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the second chapter of the Bible, we read, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. First, we should note that the word here for flowed is the same Hebrew word that Isaiah uses here. Second, we find here that Eden is located on a place from which rivers flow. We find that Eden sits upon a mountain of some kind. Eden, like the city that God will one day establish in full, rests atop a mountain. And to use the imagery of a mountain, then, is to stir the biblical memory of Eden. Eden finds itself atop a mountain from which rivers flow. And while the water finds its source in Eden, the water exits Eden. The water exits Eden and it scatters into all of the other areas of the earth. We might even say that the water falls from Eden. However, water, water is not the only thing that exits Eden, that falls from Eden that scatters from Eden. The same is true of humans. While also finding our source in Eden, we have been exiled from it because of our disobedience to God. The first humans fell from Eden. They flowed out of Eden by rejecting the teaching of the Lord. But Isaiah tells us in complete contrast all the nations shall flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. We flowed out of Eden because we rejected the good life that God intended for us. We flow back by joyfully accepting this life. We are one people, scattered. We are many rivers that God calls to come together to flow upward back into the place from which we have been exiled. And we also find the image of Eden in this promise. 
The nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. As one commentator writes, the choice of agricultural implements, plowshares and pruning hooks, is symbolic of the return to Eden. Since God will, in a sense, return us to the garden, we need the tools of gardening. We need not instruments of killing, but of cultivation. Not of pillaging, but of planting. Not of terrorizing, but tilling. But why? Why would God, through Isaiah, point us to the future by stirring up in us our Edenic past, this memory from where we've come? Why would God picture humanity here as flowing back up into its source? Well, we can't forget that Christianity tells a story. It takes us from a beginning to an end. And if we are properly to understand the end of days, then we have to properly understand the beginning of days. And understanding the beginning helps us make sense of ourselves. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put, in, put eternity into the hearts of humanity. And among other things, this means that we have a kind of collective memory of Eden, even though we ourselves have never been there. This is an unshakable fact of human nature. And what does this memory look like? Well, one form it takes is that we all know that something is wrong with the world, that history is not working out like it should. Again, we experience deep sadness when we see the tragedy of Achilles play out again and again and again in countless cultures and in countless ages. But why? Why would we feel this? Well, C.S. Lewis is helpful here as he reflects on his own conversion to Christianity. Lewis writes, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Lewis attempted to argue away God's existence because of the unjust world that he found himself within. But to say that the world is unjust is to say the world is different than the way it should be. But how can we say that the world should be different than it actually is? If there's no God, then the world is simply the way that the world is. And we ourselves, being products of the world, well, we should feel at home in it. To use Lewis's analogy, we feel wet because we are not meant to live in the water. We're meant for land. But if we feel that the world is unjust, then that must mean that the world is meant for justice. But if the universe is only one big product as cosmic chance, and we are a part of that random process, then why would we ever insist that the universe should be different than it is? Where would we get this notion? Certainly not from the universe itself. If there's no God, then there's nothing outside or beyond the horizon of the universe that can call it to account. As Lewis argues, we know a crooked line because we've seen a straight one. We know we're wet because we've been dry. 
And we know the world is unjust because we have a memory of justice. We have a sense of eternity, of Eden in our hearts. We are, with, uh, we, sorry, we are within a grand story that has a very good beginning and a very good ending. But right now, we are in the middle. We're in the struggle. We're in the conflict that comes before the great and glorious and momentous resolution. And we can't shake this memory of the beginning. As Lewis goes on to write, this is a good world that has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. Otherwise, we have no reason to mourn the ravages of war and of deaths, deaths like those of Achilles or Shaw Stewart or countless others throughout fallen human history. But we all sense the sadness here. Again, Eden is where we have come from. And the city of God, the city of Zion, is a kind of return to Eden. Isaiah reminds us why we have these longings in the first place for peace and justice and joy and love and life. He reminds us that we are in the middle of the story. And so he reminds us of where we began so that we would rightly know where we are going. That we would know the end that's promised. And that brings us to the second point, establishing the city. Because we have to ask, how is it that we come to this great city? Well, by our own efforts, it's impossible. Remember, this is not the result of some human historical program. This is God's radical break into history. And to further flesh out Isaiah's imagery, again, water can't flow uphill. And we, by our own efforts, cannot ascend to the city of God atop Mount Zion. We have been exiled because we've broken the law of God. But it's in the keeping of the law of God that we come back. As Isaiah tells us, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Even more, we find that the Lord himself will use his law to judge the many peoples that come to the city of God. The Lord shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. However, we continue to break the law. We continue to war. We continue to rage. We continue to seek our good over the good of our neighbors. We, can, we continue to refuse God the gratitude and the honor that he deserves for who he is and for all that he has done. The law, then, by our own efforts, is only a cause of judgment. So what are we to do? Well, Augustine the ancient African bishop in his classic book, The City of God. He tells us that there are two cities that stretch throughout human history. He says there's the city of God and the city of man. And Augustine takes us back to Genesis 4, in which Cain kills his brother Abel, and fresh from the blood of killing his brother, Cain founds a city. And while Abel ultimately belongs to the city of God, Cain belongs only to the city of man. And this act of fratricide, of brother killing brother, it shows us that the city of man stands against the city of God. But this is not the only division 
Augustine writes the city of God in response to the fall of Rome, trying to help both Christians and pagans make sense of the collapse of the supposed eternal city. Augustine points out that the founding story of Rome follows the very pattern, this pattern of fratricide that we see in the founding of Cain's story. Sorry, Cain's city. In the celebrated mythology of Rome, Rome is founded by Romulus killing his brother Remus so that he can be the sole leader and ruler of the city. Again, we find a city founded upon one brother taking the life of the other. Cain, in a new form, founds another city. Augustine pushes us further here. In this case, it's not the city of man against the city of God. It's the city of man against the city of man. Augustine tells us that the city of man is inherently divided and at odds with itself. Romulus and Remus both seek to establish the city of Cain, but Romulus puts Remus to death to do so. And we need to tread carefully here because the city of man is not without its good. Augustine tells us that it often brings with it a sort of earthly peace so that humans might not live in perpetual and continual violence with one another. In this peace, we are able to pursue good gifts of God, the everyday amenities of human life that are very important, things like food and shelter, other kinds of resources. In fact, such goods are what the city of man is organized around. But Augustine points out that while these are good gifts of God that we should gladly and gratefully receive, these goods cannot ultimately hold a people together. These are goods that fall apart. They're subject to scarcity and famine. They're often greedily hoarded by one group against another. They can be stolen by force. They will most certainly decay. And often they lead one people to rage in war against another. These are goods in which our hearts cannot rest. These are goods that cannot offer lasting happiness and security. These are goods that in a fallen world often set persons against each other. And so Augustine writes, since its good is not the sort of good that brings no anxieties to those who love it, the earthly city is often divided against itself by lawsuits, wars, and conflicts, and by seeking victories that either bring death or are themselves doomed to be short-lived. And so we're back to Achilles and Patrick Shaw Stewart and the harsh realities of conflict that we know in the present world. All of these are good gifts from God, but Augustine warns us these are not our greatest good. Our greatest good, our highest end, our deepest joy, our only true happiness that cannot be lost or divided or taken or ever be in scarcity or short supply is God alone. But if we are all guilty of warring for these lesser goods, how can we stand against the Lord's judgment by way of the Lord's law? How can we, like water, flow upward into the city of God? Well, the city of God is also founded upon bloodshed. But it's a bloodshed of a different kind. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author tells us, 
You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The city of man is founded upon the blood of brother killing brother. And this blood cries out for revenge. This is the word that the blood of Abel speaks. This blood cries out for war. This blood cries out for history as we now know it. However, the author of Hebrews tells us that the city of God, the same city spoken of by Isaiah, is founded upon a different blood. The blood of the mediator, the blood of Christ Jesus. The city of God is not founded upon one brother taking the life of another, but it's founded upon God in Christ, our true brother, giving his blood for us. The blood of Abel screams out for revenge. It screams out for history as we know it. But the blood of Christ cries out for mercy. Christ has taken the curse of the law upon himself. Christ has taken the punishment that we deserve for being Cain, for killing Abel in some way, shape, or form, for saying and doing your life for mine. Yes, Christ is the judge, but he's also the one who takes the judgment upon himself. The city of God is not built upon the charter of your life for mine, but of Christ, the Lord, Adonai, saying my life for yours. The city of God is not the city of man. And the lordship of Christ is not the lordship that we know in this world. And this changes things. As Isaiah tells us, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. The swords become plowshares. The tools for killing become tools of cultivation. And this takes on special meaning when we think about Cain's vocation. In Genesis 4, we read, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Abel, or sorry, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Cain was a farmer. He worked with the plowshare. And it doesn't take much imagination, however the picture might be, to see Cain using his plowshare to murder his brother. Here, the plowshare has become the sword. This is how the city of man is founded. But the city of God is exactly the opposite. Here, Christ is killed. Christ is killed upon the Roman execution tool of the cross, a kind of ancient electric chair. Yet this tool of death, the cross, becomes the very source of life. Christ takes the death that we as Cain deserve so that he might give us life. The ultimate sword, the Roman execution and torture device of the cross, becomes the basis for new life in Christ. The city of man is founded upon plowshares becoming swords, the city of God is founding upon swords becoming plowshares. And now, because of Christ, the law of God becomes a joy. It becomes the very form of life that we are called to. 
the life that we have always longed for, the life that, that we are guaranteed if only we receive Christ by faith. And that brings us to our third point, anticipating the city. And for the third and final point, I want us to explore some applications for Advent. What we're promised here is God's radical break into history. One day Christ will return in death and sadness and all of the corruption that we see in ourselves and in society will be no more. One day Christ will return and we will be home, really and truly home. We will return to Eden, but a better Eden. We will not just come to the garden of God, but to the very city of God. We will flow upward to the city of God. And this will happen not by our own work. Water cannot flow upward, but because the work of Christ. If only we will receive him. Again, this is not the result of human historical progress. Yes, as Christians, we should fulfill our civic duties. Yes, we should work for and promote justice in the societies in which we live. This is very important. And this has always and ever been a Christian priority. But we should also be realistic. No city of man, no nation established by humans will bring this about. No political agenda will lead humanity home. All nations rise and fall. This has always happened. And yet the city of God stands strong. The world may seem like it's collapsing around you, like the fall of Rome in Augustine's day, but the world always feels like that. Don't let news headlines panic you. Instead, let them remind you of the always fragile and precarious and passing nature of the city of man in any and all of its forms. The world in the present state is not our home. Our true home is something that we must wait for. And Advent is very much about waiting. During the Christmas season, we celebrate Christ's first advent, his first coming, but we also anticipate his second coming, an advent which will bring about, which will fulfill all that Isaiah here promises. And in response, we must learn to wait. And there are at least two important ways that we wait well, with longing and with watchfulness. Let us long for the city of God. Theologian Sarah Stewart Craker, actually, in commenting upon the theology of Augustine, she writes, believers learn longing from the Holy Spirit and practice it as a morally formative act. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit always intercedes within us with the groanings and longings that are too deep for words. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would make us long ever more intensely for Christ's second coming. Again, longing is a morally formative act. To long for the right things is to groan rightly, to love rightly, to want rightly, to be formed rightly. Take time and meditate upon the city of God on its coming in full. Take time this Advent and learn to truly long for it. 
Longing is an essential spiritual discipline. If you don't long for this, you will never live for this. Let all the sadness in the world make you yearn ever more deeply for Christ coming to set all things right. And let us be watchful for the city of God. Remember that Christ's return is not a historical progression, but a radical inbreaking. Any moment he may come, any moment. We're not called to make a guess about when he will come based on current political or national circumstances. No, but we are called to be ever watchful for his coming. We're to ask ourselves every morning, will he come today? And if we cease to be watchful, then his return has ceased to be a functional reality in our lives. One day, he will come. And so we must always ask, is today that day? Ask and ask and ask yourself this question during the season of Advent. And finally, let us close by letting C.S. Lewis tie all of these threads together. He writes this in the final book of his Chronicles of Narnia. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover in the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so let us look forward to that day, not long from now, I promise you, when Christ will come to us, either stirring us from our daily duties or rousing us from the grievous grave. And he will say to us, my dear child, awake, it's time to come home. And let us respond like the Narnians. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up. Come further in. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the city of God. We thank you for a city that's founded upon the life of your son, Jesus Christ, giving himself for us. Help us to long for it. Help us to be watchful for it. Help that hope be an operative reality in our lives. And thank you for the assurance and the certainty of that promise. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.